Bibles, or you can follow along uh, in your own. Charles Spurgeon uh, said of this psalm, this is what he said, he said, it's one of the easiest of all the psalms to read, but its lesson is one of the hardest to learn. And I think it's very true. It's very true of me even this week as I uh, wrestle through this, as I try to live it out. Uh, it definitely is one of the easiest ones to read, shortest ones of the psalms, but difficult to live out. And so we definitely need the grace of God and His Spirit to lead us in this. So follow along with me, starting in verse 1, these three short verses. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that, Lord, we would be transformed, not because of anything we can do, but because of your spirit that leads us and strengthens us. So do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2019, I was able to get a sabbatical because the church had graciously offered one for me. And one of the priorities of my sabbatical in those three months was that I would take a father-son trip with Stephen. He was 12 years old. He was turning 13. And, you know, those, thir those teenage years, you could easily lose them, right? And so I was like, I'm going to be very intentional. We're going to go somewhere, connect. And we decided to go to Korea. Uh, not only to visit my parents, but also as a 12-year-old to begin to understand his own culture as a Korean-American kid. And so we made our way there, and one of the places that we went to was the southernmost tip of Korea. And there, there are like hundreds of islands. One of the most famous ones is called Jeju, and it's probably like the Hawaii of Korea. We didn't go there but we went to another island, and there we discovered this amazing water park. I mean, it was gigantic. And it's not like the water parks you think of here. You know, you could go to Six Flags, and there you could enjoy the slides and whatnot. This was beautiful in all of its ways. It overlooked the ocean. You saw the mountains in the backdrop. And we just had a blast. We went all the rides. Uh, we, there was a hot tub outside where you could just kind of kick back, relax. They had all these massaging jets that you could sort of sit back and, and be pampered. But one of the other things that this water park had was this lazy river. And so Steve and I were like, let's, let's go on this lazy river uh, for the rest of the afternoon into the evening, and then we'll go back to the hotel. And so we made our way down to the Lazy River. We got our tubes. And as we started entering into the Lazy River, there was this lifeguard blowing his whistle angrily and just pointing at me and going, no, no, no. And remember, I'm in Korea. And my Korea is not that good. I could barely hold a conversation. But when you're starting to use technical jargon, I don't know what this lifeguard was yelling at me about. But he was just yelling at me and pointing at me and speaking to me in Korean. And I'm looking at Stephen going, I have no clue what this dude is yelling at me for. We just want to go enjoy the lazy river. Well, this older man kindly said to us, you know, you need, you need a life vest, you know, this thing. I'm like, oh, you need a life vest. But 
why? Like, I'm getting annoyed, right? The guy's yelling at me. We're going into the lazy river. Why do you need a life vest? And so we go back up trying to find a life vest. You have to rent it, and we had no money. But long story short, this family gives us their life vest. And so we put it on. We get our tubes, and we're finally going into the lazy river. And we're just like, ah, oh, we can just enjoy, kick back, relax, and see the sunset. And as we get onto this lazy river, it takes this quick turn around the bend. And all you hear is like screaming. <laughs> People are like yelling, horrified. And I'm just, now I'm really annoyed. Like I just wanted to enjoy a nice lazy river for the next few hours with my son and talk. And people are screaming, and, and, and no one's looking forward. They're all looking back at us and behind us. And we're like, what is going on? And as we turn, this wave that's like 50 feet high, or it wasn't 50 feet high, but it seemed like 50 feet high, just crashes upon us. We lose our tubes. I lose my phone. And we don't know what hit us. Long story short, this isn't no lazy river. This is a raging, extreme river that I did not know about. I feel like this exactly explains our cultural moment. We are in this current that is fast, large, quick, and we cannot stop this river. And I feel like that's the moment we are living in. Zach Eswine, who's a pastor friend of mine and also is um, serving at a church here called Riverside, he said this in his book, The Imperfect Pastor. He said, we are lured into the trap of what, is called, of what he calls trying to do large things famously as fast as possible. Now, I would add the word constantly. We are constantly trying to do large things famously as fast as possible. And what does that lead us to? That leads to an anxiety-producing, performance-producing, driven, exhausted, and tired culture. Does that describe any of you this morning? You're anxious, you're stressed, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you find yourself in the current of that extreme raging river not being able to stop. As you ask yourself this question, this is what David says. He says, yes, the culture is fast-paced. It wants efficiency. It wants to keep moving, and you've got to be able to produce and perform. But what does David say? The king of Israel, this nation, he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. He had so many responsibilities. He had to rule and reign. He had to go into battle. Think about all the different needs that came his way. And it wasn't that he shirked his responsibilities. It wasn't like he just disappeared from his kingly duties. In the midst of that current that he was in, he's able to say, I have calmed and quieted my soul. All of us desire that, don't we? I spent time memorizing this verse this week. Even if I couldn't live it out, I felt like this is such an important aspect in our cultural moment to be able to say, how do we have rest? How do we have a calm and quiet soul while we are still in the midst of this extreme river? Because here's the thing, we can't get out of it. Steve and I could have, as illustrations fall short, 
But in this culture, we cannot remove ourselves. We can escape from the culture, I guess, and live siloed lives as Christians. But I don't think that's the point of Scripture. We're supposed to be in the culture, but how do we live a quiet and calm life? Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you quiet inside? If your answer is no, then let me ask some follow-up questions. What is the noise going on inside of you? Where does it come from? How do you get busy and preoccupied and why? Do you lose your composure? When do you get worried and irritable and wearied and hopeless? Reflect on those questions. Even this morning as Leo led us in the prayer time, there was a minute of silence. And if you're anything like me, my mind is racing. It's not quiet. It's not composed. My heart is racing. My mind is racing. It is noisy. And there are so many things going on in my soul. But here, David gives us a way to have a quiet and calm soul in the midst of the river that we're riding. How do we do that? The world offers mindfulness, meditations, yoga, even other things, right, that we can easily find ourselves doing that easily gets us addicted because we continue to need to get that hit to be able to find any sort of stress-relieving opportunities. But what David offers us is something much deeper, much richer, And briefly, I just want to go through these three verses and each verse offering us a way to have a calm and quiet soul, not by removing ourselves from the river that's raging, but while we're in it, to be able to offer the world something countercultural. First thing we see here is humility. Humility. I think all of us here would admit that we don't, want to be described as prideful people. And yet, every single one of us struggles with it, right? Look at what he writes. David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, all of us can struggle with pride in different ways. Some of us, we're just arrogant people. Right? Maybe you don't want to admit it, but we look at all of our successes, our academics, our sports teams that we're on, our grades, the people that we hang out with, your job, your finances, all of it. And you go, when you compare yourself to others, you're like, I'm just a better person. I'm a more successful person. I have arrived and they haven't. And we easily find ourselves in our culture canceling people left and right. Correct? But there's also some of us who go, "Ah, I don't know if I struggle with that. I'm not a prideful person because I'm so insecure. But insecurity can breed pride very easily. That's me. So when I see a successful pastor, I go, they might be successful, but I'm a better dad. (laughs) There's no way they could be a successful pastor. Their family must be in ruins, right? And we can do that, whether you, you, kids, you guys are going back to school tomorrow, maybe you just started this past week, and you see the popular kids, and what do you do in your insecurity? You go, oh, they're popular, but like they're losers. They're all fake. Or some of us look at 
good-looking, attractive people. And what do we say? Well, they're superficial, right? In our insecurities, we still inevitably compare ourselves to others so that we might feel good about ourselves. That's pride. And what David does is he takes this whole person and he says, my heart, my eyes, my hands, and what I occupy myself with, I don't do that. Think about the heart. He's saying pride. Humility doesn't begin by just doing things or acting. It begins in the heart. It's an inward. It's fr- it starts from the inside out. To be able to recognize that there is humility within that makes its way out in how we think and how we act and what we, how we um, treat others. But then he goes to the eyes and says, I need to be careful in what my eyes look at so that I don't end up being a prideful person, but rather I stay humble. If you were to write this today, I can imagine him saying, my eyes are careful not to look at too much social media, right? Social media breeds the comparison and the pride and the false sense of humility in our own insecurities, and we're always comparing. He's careful not to raise his eyes too high. And lastly, which I think is so, so challenging. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In other words, he says, I'm not going to wear myself out trying to unravel things that are honestly beyond me. But we do that. If we're going to trust that God is God, there are going to be things that we don't understand. We could occupy our minds and we could occupy ourselves with thinking about past regrets, broken relationships, suffering and hardship that you've gone through. And if we're occupying ourselves with things that are beyond us, how, how you can imagine how pride so incessantly just drives at this performance-driven, anxiety-producing river that we're on where our hearts and our minds are so noisy. But what David says is, we need to be people of humility. To be humble in our hearts, in our minds, in what we occupy ourselves with. But secondly, in verse 2, he talks about contentment. We want to, in the midst of this extreme river that we're all on in our cultural moment, if we want to have a calm and quiet soul, what does he say? He says, we need to be content. Look at what he describes in our image for us. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The king of a nation says, I am like a little child, like a baby who is weaned from its mother. Now, for some of us, I know we are young moms, and you know what a what a child that is not weaned looks like, right? When you put a child that's not weaned on your lap and it's hungry, it's rooting, it's squirming, it's angry, it's fussy, it wants its mother's milk and it's agitated or he or she is agitated, right? That's what a child that is not weaned looks like and I think what David is saying is we're witnessing a childish version of things that destroy us as adults or as teenagers or as kids. It's the anxiety, it's depression, anger, jealousy, discontent, confusion. If we're not weaned, we're agitated and angry and anxious. 
And we need to be like a child that is weaned. And it's drastically different what a weaned child looks like when it's on its mother's lap, right? It's content. He's peaceful. She's joyous. Why? Because she's in the presence of her, her or his mom. In other words, there is joy in having your hunger satisfied, of course. But there's a greater joy in God just being in his presence. And that's what David is saying. To be able to have a calm and quiet soul we need to be able to be content people like a child that is weaned. And Jesus invites us into that. When the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, right? Talk about pride. <laughs> what does Jesus say? He says, look at those children. You need to be like a child to be able to come into the kingdom. A child that is content, innocent, humble, we need to come to him like children who are weaned. Sitting in the Father's lap. Because there's no greater joy than being with him in his presence. That's why we're talking about this month of connecting and growing. Whether it's through community groups, Bible studies. What you are doing right now sitting here this morning or for those that are watching online. To be able to take that rhythm of resting and sitting i just met with a brother this week and just reminding him of the importance of sunday morning because it's here that we hear god's invitation to come and worship because whoever you are whatever you've done no matter how busy you've been no matter how prideful you've been this week he says come come to me and i want you to be in my presence i want to meet with you this morning but we also get to hear every single week the joy of knowing that we are forgiven people. We get to be instructed by God's word. We get to come and fellowship and, and dine at the table. We get to lift up prayers. We get to sing songs. And all of this, what does it do? It's a means of God's grace to quiet our souls in the midst of what is a hard, anxious-producing river that we're on. This is the beauty of what David is getting at, are we content to be able to know that there is means of God's grace in the midst of the river? Zach Eswine, as he talks about the cultural moment that we're in, he says, while the contemporary wisdom values large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can, the gospel is actually about doing small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time, using the means imbued with God's divine power to give growth. Isn't that what Jesus said? He says, what's the kingdom of God like? It's a tiny little mustard seed. It's small. It's slow. But that's the way of the gospel. It's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of transformation in our lives. It's not fast. It's not efficient. It's not dramatic and popular and famous. But it's slow. We see humility and contentment, but lastly, as we close, we see hope. Verse 3, David says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We're called to hope in the Lord. Hope in who? In Jesus, right? We're supposed to set our eyes on Him. 
Because as we hope in the Lord, that is where we find humility. That is where we find contentment. It's only in Jesus. And so put your hope in Him. Why? Because He's the one who offers us forgiveness. He's the one who offers us steadfast love. He's the one where there is plentiful redemption as we looked at last week in Psalm 130. It's when we put our hope in Jesus, we begin to be able to see more clearly, right? Because what is success, as Jesus tells us? Success is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does he say is a happy person who is joyous and blessed? It's those who are poor in spirit. Those who mourn and are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted. This is not what the culture tells us, is it? But this is what Jesus not only taught, but he lived out and embodied every day of his life. When there was urgency, when Mary and Martha call out and say, Lazarus is dying, Jesus slowly, methodically comes and meets them in their pain. Doesn't rush there, but comes and then raises him from the dead. Jesus withdraws from the crowds and spends time with his Father so that he might receive the grace and mercy and the strength needed to be able to do what he was called to here on earth. And Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what's Jesus' invitation for you and for me when we're living in a weary, fast-paced life? He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. That's why we hope in the Lord. That's why we need to set our eyes on Jesus. You know, there was another man not just Stephen and me who experienced a raging river actually in the gospels there's another man named Peter who was a disciple and when he saw Jesus walking on water you know what he did he's like Jesus invite me can I come to you and Jesus is like yeah sure come on up so what does Peter do he takes this great step of courage and he gets out of the boat and he steps on the water and he's walking on water in the midst of a raging storm with winds blowing but the moment he takes his eyes off of jesus and looks at the wind looks at the raging storm he begins to sink jesus extends his hands he pulls him out of that water and what does he say to peter says you of little faith why because he set his eyes on the circumstances things that were too marvelous and too great for him to understand when his eyes should have been on Jesus. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. As we seek humility, as we seek out to be people who are content, as we look and set our eyes on Jesus, we can be on the extreme raging rivers, 
And we can be people who are quiet and calm in our souls because of what Jesus offers you and me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the invitation to take your yoke upon him, us and to learn from you, for we know that you are gentle and lonely, and only in you will we ever find rest. So, Father, as we come to the table now, Lord, may you feed us and strengthen us and give us eyes to see, so that, Lord, even in the midst of the crazy, tumultuous, chaotic life that is ours, Lord, we can still swim in those rivers and have souls that are quiet and calm because of your invitation to come to you. Lord, may you do that now as we eat and drink together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.